Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Panier, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. On August 31st, Kyrgyzstan will mark 32 years as an independent country, and in the days and weeks that follow, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Kazakhstan will do the same. It's a good time to take stock of what sort of governments we have in Central Asia more than three decades since they became independent. The presidents of, the four, of four of the countries have changed since 2016. Promises of reforms continue, but legislation continues to be changed to benefit the rulers, and the space for alternative views within these countries seems to be contracting. What direction are the Central Asian countries headed in? To discuss all this, I am joined by Asel Tutumlu, originally from Kazakhstan, but currently a lecturer at the Department of International Relations and Political Science at Near East University in Nicosia, Cyprus, Luke Ancheski. Professor of Central Asian Studies at Glasgow University and author of several books on Central Asia, including Turkmenistan's Foreign Policy, Positive Neutrality, and the Consolidation of the Turkmen Regime, and Alexander Cooley, Claire Tao Professor of Political Science and Vice Provost at Barnard College, former Director of Columbia University's Harriman Institute, and also the author of several of the books on Central Asia, and I'll name Great Games Local Rules, since I have Alex's autograph in my copy. Thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, and uh, first, we'll look at, are there any true reform processes going on in Central Asia? Or are we seeing what Luca has called authoritarian modernization, simply a reconcentration of power into new hands uh, with the preserva- preservation of most of the old system of government that's been rebranded and given a shiny new exterior? Since Kazakh President uh, Kasim Jamar Takayev says he's creating a new Kazakhstan, and Uzbek President Shavkat Merzioyev says he's also fashioning a new Uzbekistan, let's start with them. Uh, Asel, uh, I'll ask you first. I want you all to comment on this. But Asel, do you see anything changing in Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan's domestic politics? Well, I actually don't really see much changes in the regime. Uh, Particularly, um, I think all Central Asian states have been very much engaged in uh, trying to sustain uh, the stability of their regime. And therefore, we've had uh, very interesting, I think, comparisons between successions, political successions in particular. Um, So, each Central Asian state can actually uh, have an own chapter, so to say, on uh, the story of succession. Uh, but the motivation behind uh, these stories have been uh, pretty much similar is to basically sustain the existing uh, framework uh, of political economy where most of the uh, um, economic benefit uh, goes through a very small uh, clique uh, within the regime. Uh, and uh, politics and economics is very much linked uh, through either family ties, uh, friendship ties, uh, or some kind of informal uh, uh, ties between uh, within the elites. Uh, but uh, at the same time, we can see that uh, the population has been changing a lot. And uh, there are three different things that I think that we need to, to really consider um, and that's what, uh, for me, is new about Central Asia, rather than the a kind of a top-down constitutional changes, um, regime change, and so on. Um, it's it hasn't really been that uh, that uh, different. Uh, but instead, uh, what we see is the very much changing political consciousness all over the region, uh, not only with the debates uh, uh, inspired by decolonization and inspired particularly by uh, Russian war in Ukraine. Uh, but also kind of growing national consciousness and uh, re-evaluation of uh, histories, uh, not just the family histories, but 
the uh, histories of the of the countries and the regions uh, and the appearance of very different narratives throughout. Uh, we can see also the kind of a grassroots initiation of local knowledge production that are using very unconventional methods such as art, for example, uh, protest art, podcasts, talk shows, and so on. And uh, protest in general became kind of a normal communication strategy. I wouldn't say, of course, that it's been normalized yet, but uh, but it is indeed um, a much more frequent display of dissatisfaction uh, in the public sphere, um, which hasn't actually been happening with this intensity uh, and with these grievances uh, before. So um, in that sense, I do see a very strong changing public consciousness that is happening. Um, and all of that obviously is compounded by the uh, decreasing quality of life and really decreasing amount of opportunities because the elite uh, um, that controls pretty much most of the financial streams, so to say, uh, is really undermining the availability of opportunities, uh, particularly for young people. And I think this is also has been very much recognized within the society. And we can also talk about the environmental catastrophes and looming environmental uh, doom, so to say, um, uh, that has been experienced by by the most vulnerable people in the region, uh, who are also now recognizing the fact that they do need to have a stronger state and a stronger political say as well. So to me, these social uh, changes uh, are actually much more interesting and visible than the political ones. Okay, uh, Alex, I, I would like to get your thoughts on that too. Do you see any any signs of reform, and are we looking at the only reform being grassroots and nothing from top down? Well, it's an interesting question when you think about what your standard for reform is, right? If we start to use a kind of nineteen nineties ideal post communist type of transition type of standard, then we run into all sorts of sort of analytical problems, including an obvious. Uh, yes, there's a lot of sort of authoritarian continuities, but uh, it's not at all clear that the, this, you know, the the international dynamics are in any way uh, favorable the way they were before. So I think a, a few things are going on. I completely agree with the cell seven. You know, the genuine experimentation at the social level, impetus for sort of change is going on. At the same time, we're seeing a kind of the fruits of, you know, a few decades of sort of state building in which the sort of, you know, the, the, the technologies of statehood makes it seem as if, you know, reforms are underway, even when they might not be by our sort of, you know, classical uh, kind of standard. And a sort of, you know, a, a much more effective presence in the international uh, kind of sphere, right? So, we see a, a reliance on the international side, you know, more management consultants, more foreign advisors, international law firms. We see uh, a lot more uh, understanding of sort of you know, international image crafting, uh, um, use of lobbyists, uh, you know, uh, you know, and it's sort of, you know, project out. You know, that's that's certainly uh, uh uh, part of it, and especially when we think of a country like Uzbekistan, right, that sort of for decades, you know, almost took it as a badge of honor um, that they didn't care what their international image was, right? Um, so I think that's, you know, that's a big part of this, sort of, you know, the image crafting, pretend that there's there's reforms. I think you're seeing also 
um, a very savvy understanding of technologies, digital technologies, social media, the ability to manipulate, the ability to shut off in times of sort of high stakes. Um, and I think um, this is being pioneered and perfected. And one of the uses um, that this has been put up um, is in being able to sort of identify and, and, and trigger uh, uh, sort of going after possible threats, both within the country and outside, right? So then, then this relates to this sort of other kind of authoritarian innovation that we've seen, especially over the last 15 years, which is sort of, you know, the growth of sort of transnational repression and the extraterritorial reach of all these governments, right? Uh, and the way that they've um, really become adept at, at doing that. Um, so I would say sort of, you know, the technological savviness in addition to sort of the image crafting is a second area. And this leads to what I think is a real kind of paradox. Um, and you mentioned this, I, you know, earlier uh, offline, I've been thinking about, you know, the, the justification for Central Asian authoritarianism used to be the preservation of stability. Yeah. Like, you know, we have stable governments. Um, you know, we don't want color revolutions. We don't want, you know, social unrest. We don't want mass protests. To us, this isn't progress, isn't democracy. This is sort of a standard line. Um, but what you've actually seen in the last couple of years is enormous instability, right? By any sort of marker, right? And what have you seen what happened? The events last year in Uzbekistan, last summer, uh, last January events in Kazakhstan, uh, the clash uh, between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan uh, on the border, the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, this is like, you know, the definition of instability. And yet somehow, you know, instability in and of itself is no longer the kind of currency that was used, right? The sort of justification. So something very interesting is going on, right? Better images, better technological controls, uh, more international deference, right, to what's going on sort of domestically, yet more sort of instability. And, and that, all of those ingredients right now, I think, uh, make it um, quite fascinating, but, you know, depressing for those who really do care about the potential for reform in the countries. Okay, well, thank you. Um, Luca, get to uh, your turn, and I want you to comment on this too, but I also was hoping that you could give us a quick uh, idea of the, the concept of authoritarian modernization and what it looks like in Central Asia. Look, I I agree with with both uh, with, with what both Alex and Asiel have mentioned. I use the modernization uh, in authoritarian context framework to describe what was happening in Uzbekistan shortly after Karimov had gone. So it seemed to me that the the president Mir Ziyoyev wanted to have a very controlled opening in the economic. Uh, realm without really liberalizing at all the, the, the political scene. So there were, this is not, this is not even what Nazarbayev used to say, politics uh, later and economic first. He was economic only. So the modernization was actually the component that were very, very interested in. And it seemed to have worked. I mean, I, I went back quite often to Uzbekistan in the post crime I was there last month. And you couldn't really say that things were the same as used to be. But what has happened is that now the government has acquired the control, the monopoly of what can be labeled new and what can be labeled old without really changing anything. 
And I give a couple of examples. This idea of New Uzbekistan, which has been then piloted by Kazakhstan, the new Kazakhstan. Well, what is it? It's uh, apparently stable. And here I agree with Alex. These regimes are stable until they're not. An apparently stable regime which delivers some sort of economic wealth without thinking of equality and it maintains the, the same elite in the same position for 20, 30 years. That's what they, they think is new. But at the same time, though, they are redefining what is old. So one of the most intense experiences I've had last time I went was that I went, I went to see the Karimov Museum in Uzbekistan. And the reality is that there should, there should be no trace of Islam Karimov in New Uzbekistan. Well, the museum is there. It was getting renovated. And the image of the, the former regime that these guys want you to believe in, it was just about the figure of the president. There was no policy, obviously no Gulnara, no context about what 30 years of authoritarian, 25 years of authoritarian were, and it's just about making sure that we knew that he was there. So they redefining constantly was this perception of all Uzbekistanis. So in that sense, they modernizing by globalizing, opening up to the, to the international community, but ultimately the liberalization uh, dimension, the, the politics side, you know, and this is Again, as Alex said, it's bad if you believe in those values, which we should. It's, it remains untouched. And the election that we had last month are, again, another example in which you do have a regime-only field that, that delivers a predetermined result. So I think that this label has been quite uh, up, at least from where I stand, because it really captures what's going on in Uzbekistan. What I'm, I'm a little bit less... Uh, well, not, not what I'm even more uh, sort of amazed by is how the idea of novelty in Kazakhstan has been completely misinterpreted by the regime. I don't really see the enthusiasm of the people, not that it is such big support, but in Uzbekistan you can see that people believe that something is changing. In Kazakhstan, the transition of the first presidency, which is a very important step in the statecraft of the, of the, of, of the region, has been received by the people with more with a delusional attitude. They don't they know that they're not gonna get any change. So you see that even across six or seven years, this perception of what's new and what's old and the cap the capability of deliver on this idea of novelty and regime regeneration has completely changed from Uzbek to the Kazakhstani side. And that's something which I think will instigate a circle of authoritarian regeneration, which you re you really never have qualitative improvement of government, you just have turnover at elite level and with some kind of tinkering around the margin of the, of the economic strategy. And it's, to me, it's really about modernizing authoritarianism for the next 30, 40 years. Okay, yeah, uh, thank you. Okay, let, let's talk about this regionally, too. I mean, there was a time not even so long ago when you could look at, you could talk about the five Central Asian countries and, and the way they were governed was distinctly different. Turkmenistan was rock bottom, uh, Kyrgyzstan, right, that is supposedly the darling of the West, the island of democracy in Central Asia, they're starting to look a lot more like each other than they used to. Is there, is there some kind of like mutual support group going on in, in, the, in Central Asia? Because, of course, the leadership meets with each other much more often than they used to in the old days, too. Uh, so is regional, our regional ties actually playing some part in this? And I'll start with you, Alex. Yeah, I like this idea of a mutual support group. Well, look, I think 
uh, you know, there, there's a couple, again, really interesting dynamics at play, sort of inverting a situation that we had very early on, right? So I remember some of the first regional summits of the early 1990s, you know, they revealed not the commonalities, they revealed the differences. They revealed also the massive egos and rivalries between the presidents, right? Where you know, just Nazarbayev and Karimov just couldn't stand each other, right? And that endured you know, for decades. And a sense of sort of tentativeness in the world, right? What was their place, right? What were best standards? Who do you have advising you? You know, oh, that's, you know, that's a good idea. There, there was, you know, regional summits weren't about cooperation. They were about underlying that their independence and the presidents is in charge, right? And they're all kind of extending that recognition to each other. Now, the, the, the irony in terms of sort of regional dynamics is we've been through now three decades of all these countries wanting Central Asia to become more regional, right? We've had like, you know, the U.S. impose uh, the Silk Route, the Chinese sort of the Go West and Belt and Road Initiative, Russia pushing its own economic ar- and security architectures, um, as well as its sort of migration links. You had the EU wanting to make Central Asia more like the EU and so forth. And all of these had a sort of a geopolitical kind of political agenda the Central Asian governments recognized. What I find really interesting right now with these sort of summits is that you're actually seeing not only the convergence that you talked about, you're actually seeing actual regional integration, I would say sort of for the first time, right? Sort of you take the Kazakh-Uzbek vector, like you have like real trade exploding between the countries in the way that we just haven't seen before. And you're actually seeing um, a much more sort of, you know, assertive and confident regional symmetry um, where actual issues are being discussed, right? Sort of, you know, supply chains, environmental cooperation, you know, all these things now, yeah, maybe they haven't reached sort of solutions. So there's a really interesting sort of paradox going on that there is this authoritarianism, there is this convergence on political uh, uh, models, but you're actually seeing a symmetry that's not just sort of defensive, that's, you know, a, you know, I would say sort of, you know, much more confident uh, and, and, and in a weird way, I would say a kind of acceptance of sort of central, and I'd be interested to see what, you know, Asel and Luca think about this, an acceptance of Central Asia as a grouping, right? When, you know, before that, you know, they wanted to pull away and so forth, you know, grouping and dealing with the U.S., grouping and dealing with Japan, grouping and dealing with Korea. There's an embracing of this and sort of a realization that, hey, there's some benefits to maneuver, even if we're considered to be a region. Great. Thank you, Asel. You want to comment on this one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I do. I do also like the the idea of support group, but it's also it seems like um, there is a, the intensity of symmetry has actually increased tremendously, especially after uh, the the war uh, in Ukraine. And I think now everyone kind of understands that we are all in the same boat. And there is no way to really get out of there. Um, so that's why I think they, we see the supply chains on the agenda. That's why we see very confident symmetry and a lot of meetings um, and calls as well, uh, both bilaterally and multilaterally, 
uh, trying to basically get Central Asia out into as many different fora as possible. Um, and we see the expansion of different regional organizations as well uh, for this particular reason, because it enables them to, to actually use these alternative routes and establish some kind of uh, cooperation agreements with many, many, many different partners, including Taliban. Um, uh, and there is a summit that's happening in Kazakhstan. So, uh, so there is a kind of a, a very steep learning curve uh, because the situation is so dramatic uh, with Russia being basically um, sanctioned. Uh, and now these Central Asian states that were um, very much, you know, easily uh, transporting the goods uh, and having a very kind of 30-year-old uh, links and beyond that uh, established um, modus operandi, now they have to change completely. And I think that's what, uh, what is actually happening as well. And uh, that's that we are going to see many more, I think, uh, uh, the, the summits with more intensity and many more partners as well, particularly with uh, Turkey being included, uh, potentially uh, Iran and potentially all kinds of uh, regional organizations. Uh, so whoever can offer an alternative route uh, uh, to these problems. Uh, and another thing that is also very important, I think, is that the, pre, the, the problems, there is this kind of growing recognition that the problems are indeed regional. So it's not just with the transportation and economics, but also with the environment. And we have seen um, what's happening, for example, with the Caspian Sea. The, the catastrophe that's looming in the Caspian Sea uh, that will be potentially akin to, uh, to the Aral Sea uh, we also can see that one third of uh, the, the river Mudaria uh, will be basically gone uh, with the dam uh, built in Afghanistan. So there are indeed reasons for, for everyone to come together, because otherwise we would have to completely restructure not only the regional infrastructure, not only the regional uh, political economies, I, I mean, economic structures as well, but a completely different create and a completely different economic sectors which I think none of these regimes uh, are actually willing to do. So it's very rather urgent for them. Okay, uh, thank you. And Luca, I want to get your comment on this also, but but also uh, consider, concerning Turkmenistan. Um, you know, we can even see some of the changes in Turkmenistan's regional policy, right? When two, late 2006, Niyazov dies and they, they put in Gurban Guli, Berdy Mukhamedov as president, but clearly they didn't consult the neighboring Central Asian states about this or, or seek their blessing or anything when that happened. Yet when we have this dynast, dynastic transfer of power from father to son that happened last year, it, it was important to Turkmenistan. That that the transfer was seen as legitimate to the to the other Central Asian governments, and they did certainly uh, consult with Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan before this the transfer of power happened. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that too? And Turkmenistan's emergence might be too much of a word, uh, but anyway, at least try actually trying to get along and establish relationships with the other Central Asian states. Well, at least now they show up to the meetings, don't they? So this is already this is already a step ahead. Um, and yes, I mean, I think that you see the, the ramification of, so there is a, a regional consensus that being more involved is better. And this is something that I don't think it comes from a good place. I don't think that they finally realize that they have a number of collective issues that they go into treat collectively. I think it comes from a place of self-interest from the different regimes because they realize that Ever since Mirziyoyev came in and he started to regenerate the regional ties that were interrupted artificially by Karimov, he acquired some visibility both internally and regionally as well as internationally. So it is 
an instrument of consolidation. Whether or not Turkmenistan is, is already there, I don't, I am not sure. I mean, uh, to me, the, the, the main indicator that something is substantively changing are in, uh, not very much in trade and interest, investment, although I agree with Alex, statistics look better than they used to do. I think they are in two areas, which are energy and water. Well, water cooperation is still disastrous. You still got this division between downstream and upstream countries. They don't really get their act together. But energy, to some extent, is replicating that pattern. And we see Turkmenistan not involved in cooperation in terms of energy uh, ties, although there is a little bit now go, going into Uzbekistan. Uzbe- Turkmenistan puzzles me, uh, I mean, for a long time, because they still manage the, the, the level of control or stability without really opening. So whatever they have been doing in terms of neutrality, which means isolation, has been working in that sense. Whether or not this is sustainable in the longer run with the, the climate change challenges that will inevitably be put onto them, that, that's to be seen. Uh, although uh, you were right in mentioning that there has been a, a change at the Guard, you know, with the president giving the, the, the post to his son, but the foreign minister is the same for now 25 years, something like that. Meredov is there for a long time, which means that there are pockets of the elite that do maintain some kind of straight direction in certain sensitive policy areas. And even though uh, there is, as you said, some kind of involvement, I would still say that Turkmenistan remains quite isolated. And just to finish here, you will see in the last month, we heard a lot about the uh, relationship between the Gulf and Central Asia. And I'd done research on that 10 years ago now, and it was clear to me when I was going both around the Gulf and around Kazakhstan to ask about how could you develop that, that the border that should be open in the border between Turkmenistan and Iran. So that's something which would actually be the real game changer. Having that border operating for transport, for transit, for trade, I still haven't seen that. We now got this trilateral sort of agreement between Uzbekistan, Iran and Turkmenistan, where we now see whether there is traction there. That's something which could could either validate what you were saying, Bruce, that Turkmenistan is getting more involved, or just confirm that this posture of, this posture of isolation and insulation remains the, the the defining trait of Turkmen foreign policy for the years to come. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, and a reminder, we're talking about Central Asian governments 32 years after independence, uh, where they are right now in terms of their policies and what direction they're taking their countries in. And my guests are Luca Anceschi, Professor of Central Asian Studies at Glasgow University and author of several books on Central Asia, including Turkmenistan's Foreign Policy, Positive Neutrality, and the Consolidation of Turkmen Regime. Alexander Cooley, Clertal Professor of Political Science and Vice Provost at Barnard College, uh, also former Director of Columbia University's Harriman Institute, and the author of many, many books on Central Asia himself, and Asel Tutumlu, originally from Kazakhstan, but currently a lecturer at the Department of International Relations and Political Science at the Near East University in Nicosia, Cyprus. Thank you all for being here again. Um, Luca, let's uh, come back to you on this one. Okay, the directions the countries are taking in, and let's let's talk about what's happened since Russia launched its full-scale war on Ukraine in February 2022. What outside influences do you see, uh, outside actors, that are kind of 
influencing or influencing the Central Asian government's policies or or providing some kind of support for the policies that the Central Asian governments wish to implement in their countries? I think we need to be realistic about the options that are available to the Central Asian states internationally. This is not the geography of the place is quite is quite tough. They don't have like Ukraine the choice between you know before Russia and the West. They're not located in a place where they're surrounded by states that can have a positive influence of them. So really they have to try to strike a balance. Strike a balance in which they can't be seen too close to Russia or they can be to go too far away. So I have been talking about this right, the pursuit of the right distance uh, with, with Russia. And it seemed to me that, that they're doing that quite all right. So they've been, uh, I mean, it's a very unfortunate position to be because Eurasia's geopolitics are uh, going more and more polarized. The discourse going back to Cold War times, the influences, well, I'm not really sure that uh, the West, and I mean, the West, who's the West? The EU, US, they lost interest in promoting the values uh, in the region. So the, the, the Russia is is controversial and China is not liked enough. So I think they are, they are trying to navigate an extremely difficult balance and they're doing that in a way that tries to satisfy everything. And uh, the, maybe possibly the best way to look at that is seeing the kind of ambiguous attitude towards the sanction. You have a lot of triangulation going on. You saw it in Kyrgyzstan, which has been named in the press, but also in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. There is a lot more of what we are led to believe. And this, to me, is the representation of this very difficult predicament in which they found themselves. When I was in Uzbekistan, the people were kind of reluctant to talk about it. They knew there was a war, not Turkmenistan. But even with colleagues... You always and only hear the government line on that, which is this line of ambiguity. I think that we forgot. I mean, this is an extremely emotional moment and a, a dramatic for the Ukrainians and difficult for us to leave work in the field outside the region. But I think that we need to be, we need to give the central Asia a bit of, kind of, bit of slack because they are, it's extremely complicated. And I wouldn't really make the mistake of thinking that Russia is no longer relevant in the region just because some people think there is. The gas relationship between Russia and the region have improved. Again, you have a lot of Russian living in the region. These people are creating sort of new relationship and there hasn't been an alternative for them, for the Central Asian, that is. So I think that certainly, certainly we need to look at this with a uh, a much, uh, well, I think from better perspective, because a lot of the stuff that I read is simply not getting the point on this. Okay, thanks. Um, Asal, let me, let me put this just a slightly different to you. Um, you know, in Kazakhstan, we've seen uh, a referendum on changes to the Constitution. In Uzbekistan, we saw a referendum on changes to the Constitution. Uh, then they had snap presidential elections in both countries. This is this is obviously since uh, the Russia started the latest war uh, in Ukraine. Is is the are the events in Central Asia, the referendums, the elections, are they a response or a reaction to what's going on, uh, to what's happening in Ukraine or some other event? Uh, I actually don't really see uh, the the rea- I mean, I don't really share this interpretation. Uh, I don't think that these are these were inspired by the by the events in Ukraine. I think they were inspired by the domestic uh, 
desire to to hold power and to sustain uh, the system in place, um, particularly to kind of gain the legitimacy within the elites um, that, okay, now I am going to be in power for, let's say, seven years and you guys have to like me or you have to work with me no matter what you think about me. Um, so this type of legitimation uh, was important, particularly because, um, again, with the constitutional changes, uh, particularly because uh, Tokai, for example, came out uh, without really his team per se. Um, and uh, he had to basically work with the government apparatus uh, that has existed before. And we can see also kind of the same play uh, with uh, uh, in, in Uzbekistan with Mirziyoy, for example, granting uh, a lot of uh, power to Hakims uh, and then taking it um, uh, selectively, so to say, manipulating uh, uh, Hakims in, in places. So it is indeed important for 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 these um, autocrats uh, to have some kind of loyalty uh, in the name of stability uh, of political apparatus. But indeed, uh, the uh, which is very difficult to sustain. Uh, so to me, I think it has domestic implications rather than the international ones. Um, but the the international uh, um, context, the changing international context, uh, will also be important uh, in the future, particularly uh, since the war is dragging on and uh, uh, Central Asian uh, states will have to find, uh, again, solutions uh, to, to their uh, domestic problems uh, using the international context and using the international partners. Okay, thanks. Uh, Alex, I'm interested in your comments on this, and, and let me um, also pose a question. Uh, is it the case, then, that the Central Asian governments are just using the distraction of the international community toward other weightier matters in the world to, to simply go for it? You know, the president's figure, while everyone's, you know, watching something else, I'll just implement my own policies and consolidate my power. Is that what we're looking at? I don't think the relationship is that direct. I do think the war has done a, a few things, and you know, I think it's absolutely understandable to feel solidarity with Ukraine and to to sort of make the criticism, as many scholars and analysts did, that in the run up to the war, we viewed Uk- Ukraine through Russian lenses, and that was then that was a mistake. Yeah, I think that's that's a perfectly valid analytical criticism. However, I don't think we can, you know, and, and especially reflecting now a year and a half. Um, afterwards, I don't think we should view the entire region through the Ukrainian prism either, right? And so I think that's what's happened a bit with our analysis of Central Asia, right? That we tend to look at Central Asia as a post-colonial region that is decoupling, um, that wants national uh, identity, sovereignty, that these things are antithetical to Russia. I don't think any of those things are necessarily true, or they're you know contextually true, or it's complicated, that you actually uh, uh, see the war uh, forcing all of the Central Asian states to basically just like try and get out of the way. And they're doing this for a number of reasons, right? One is um, they don't want to pick in this Russia versus West fight (laughs) in a very genuine way because they see what happens when you do take sides, right? Um, Both with regards to what happened in Ukraine, but, you know, also a country like Belarus, right? What happens when you lose the balance, right? That's one. But B, what I think you're seeing now with Russia is not a drifting away from Russia. You're seeing a re-networking with Russia, yeah? And you're seeing it on a number of levels. You're seeing it on people to people, right? We're going to have record migration 
in Russia from Central Asia, by all indications this year, despite um, the falling ruble, that was not predicted. But now we're also seeing these Russian communities in Central Asia. And yeah, they're not as big as they were as after the war, but they are having an impact. Um, they're generating part of this authoritarian modernization in terms of these booming IT sectors, right? And sort of tech startups and so forth. Um, and yeah, there's, you know, domestic dynamics that go on with that. Um, but that's that's increasing people to people ties, not decreasing. I think sanctions evasion is the big story of the war, just to be blunt about it. And what is sanctions evasion based on? Well, on the one hand, it's based on kind of a history and pattern in informal political economy of sort of arbitrage and brokerage and evasion, right? Central, you know, Kyrgyzstan was the re-export hub of the entire region, the world for sort of 10 years, brokering its place in the WTO versus sort of the customs union back then. You're just reinvigorating this, right? In terms of sort of sanctions evasions and all of the techniques for sort of camouflaging. At the same time, you are seeing that a regional legal structure matters, right? For the longest time we in the West, oh, you know, this Eurasian Economic Union is nothing. It's, you know, it's a paper tiger. It's all this. Well, no, it is something because it offers the legal framework to then uh, start setting up the apparatus that can be sort of repurposed. And, you know, the West can, you can name and shame as it did like the last few weeks, some of these Kyrgyz companies and also some Uzbek companies. But the, the threat to impose secondary sanctions just simply is incredible, right? If you ask the Central Asian governments, you're going to have to choose between the Russian market and the U.S. market. I mean, that's not a choice, right? So you're also seeing the limits of Western influence and these tools in Central Asia. And this is a dynamic that's also being replayed in places, you know, across the sort of global south, right? Steer clear of it. Yes, a lot of sympathy for Ukraine, a lot of fear of Russia, but that doesn't translate to the kind of, I think, kind of clear policy opposition of the war criticism that we, you know, that we thought uh, we were going to see in the first few weeks. And so I think, you know, we really need to be careful about the kinds of lenses that we put on the region in, in response. You know, to me, the most, one of the most telling aspects of this was the Kazakh government getting behind the Chinese peace plan, right? <laughs> <laughs> the first country to sort of buy it. Like, you know, why is that? This is obviously signaling from Beijing. It's not a real peace plan. But, you know, it's a signal that, you know, uh, we're not taking sides. And, you know, we understand sort of changing power dynamics in the world. Now, that doesn't mean they don't want good ties with the West, with the U.S. and the EU. But think of it from their perspective. They already have the U.S. and the EU courting them. They already have their summits with Japan and, and Korea. So, you know, uh, and, 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 and much less criticism on the human rights and, frankly, on the anti-corruption front um, than they've had before. So, yes, the war has put everyone in the region. The regional ripple effects have been very difficult, um, but I see it as reconstituting ties with Russia um, and with the region as opposed to breaking them. Hey, great, and thank you because you helped me transition into my last set of questions here, which is really about the West – what the West policies towards Central Asia recently, um, you know, as, as you mentioned, Alex, and we were talking before the show, too. Last year, there were there were protests in Kazakhstan, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan that were all put down through the use of deadly force. Uh, you know, there still is endemic corruption. Uh, there's a lot of problems out there. And yet, for some reason, the, the Western countries in you could separate them, the U.S. And, and the European Union. But but those two parties 
are are actually courting better ties with the Central Asians. Criticism over over the you know the the use of force to put down protests in 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 three Central Asian countries was was there, but it was kind of muted. And you see that criticism, uh, you know, over changes in legislation that prolong presidential terms, consolidation of power, and you know, into Japarov's president, uh, Sadr Japarov's hands in Kyrgyzstan, things like that. They're not. You know, they're, they're just not getting the same kind of reaction they would have 20 or 30 years ago from some of these Western governments. So uh, it, in some ways, is this this policy kind of encouraging the Central Asians to, to since they're not getting any serious, you know, flack from it? Why not implement these policies that consolidate their own power? Is it, Do you see it like that? Asel, I'll start with you. Uh, thank you so much, Bruce. Well, uh, uh, basically, I think there is a certain understanding, or at least uh, now Central Asian regimes became more vocal in criticizing the, the West as well in having no legitimacy. Um, so they're easily pulling out different cases where they would say, well, but remember, for example, Guantanamo, or remember the police brutality, um, remember this and that. Uh, and that has been a very kind of uh, interesting weapon that has been used uh, to basically show that you guys have... basically no right to tell us uh, what to do. Uh, And also there is a very strong understanding that politics will be dominating over human rights agenda. Um, And that happens not only at the very kind of top of the government, at the level of diplomacy, but also in terms of uh, the understanding by international organizations and various uh, local and international NGOs uh, that work in the region. Um, where people have been actually um, understanding, for example, why certain NGOs would work uh, on this issue and not necessarily on another, and why would they, for example, have hired this consultant and not another. Um, So these type of stories, a kind of a dissatisfaction with the... um, uh, between the mandate, let's say, and what has been done in practice um, have been very dominant. Uh, so there is a kind of a very strong dissatisfaction with the whole Western agenda that was based and rooted in uh, liberal values and so on. Um, uh, so uh, I, I would basically say that, uh, yeah, for, for the West, it's, um, it's, it's no longer relevant. And uh, uh, another reason, uh, I think, and here I may disagree with uh, Luca about uh, about the the uh, sorry with with uh, Alex about the post colonial uh, condition um, and the Ukraine lens, um, I think it's very much uh, what we can see is a lot more spaces for independent decision making power, uh, both in foreign policy and domestically, uh, and these spaces uh, may be related to the fact that they've mastered, uh, for example, the international institutional. <laughs> Uh, policy uh, policy making process. They have actually access to different uh, key decision makers, and, uh, and uh, they have hired and have been hiring throughout the thirty years uh, a whole bunch of uh, PR agencies and uh, key street consultants and so on. But the idea here is that um, uh, right now it really with with the kind of um, Central Asian regimes have a lot more space. Uh, I feel like to 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 talk and to raise different issues and to also have uh, space not only to talk back, but to basically effectively uh, relate their interests and implement them in practice. Um, Of course, it doesn't necessarily mean that Russia will be completely now uh, ostracized and Central Asian states will actually go to either uh, West or to China. No, it doesn't mean like this. And here, I think it's very much compatible with uh, different interests and the balancing game continues. So it doesn't necessarily mean that by having this independence vo- independent voice, 
they are pushing away all the former partners. On the contrary, I feel like they are uh, trying to bring everyone together in a new, and I, I completely agree with this word, network, uh, re-networking uh, with Russia, but also re-networking with the rest of the world, uh, including, uh, I mean, given the, the, the changing uh, international conditions. Okay, Luca, let me ask you for your opinion on this. Um, you know, and have the relations between Central Asia and the West really changed that much? There was a time in the 90s, for example, right after independence. The West was the only game in town, really, right? Russia was on its knees uh, post-independence. China wasn't what China is today and really was in no position to help the Central Asians out. So the West had a lot of influence. I mean, everyone in Central Asia wanted to be friends with Western nations. Uh, and then, of course, post 9-11, for about a decade, everyone was very grateful that the United States and its allies were in Afghanistan, removed the threat from the border of Central Asia. Um, ha- have we reached a, a totally different phase here in Western Central Asian relations where the West is still important, but not so much, really, in Central Asia? Well, I, I think that there are two sides of, of this argument. Well, on the one end, when I speak to my friends in the region, they tell me, oh, in the 1990s, the U.S. were really supportive of us because they were making us doing things which we really like, you know, like reforms, democratization. And the U.S. actually did put a lot of money in that. Then, of course, the emphasis on that uh, waned and they lost all of their relevance. So on the one hand, yes, it is uh, a sign that the, the impact of these policies or these values has, has decreased. But on the other hand, and here I'm only talking about the EU because, I mean, I live in Europe, you know, and then Alex is the master when it comes to the US. What should the EU do? I mean, really, again, it's another area in which we should cut some slack. Central Asia is very far. It's a marginal region for them. Uh, they, they're the biggest donor in the region, the EU, that is. They don't really get recognition for that. And they can't really offer anything to the state in terms of member associations, because of the tyranny of distance. So, on the other hand, the regional regimes have learned that they can be friends with the EU, score all the image-making points, but then just forget about the reforms that they, they asked them to do. So, I think that it's now the time to recognize that if the EU can have pragmatic relationship with the region and do some work in the human dimension, Small things, and that's both for the EU and for the OSCE, by the way, particularly the OSCE, where you then realize that rather than asking for the big things and asking for the small changes, incremental changes, then you can really have some kind of positive impact. Because asking for too much with these kind of regimes, very intractable, very shrewd, is not going to lead you anywhere. And, and you saw it when you, when you look at the bilateral ties that the EU has got with the big three, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan. Well, Kazakhstan and, and Uzbekistan, they have second-generation partner cooperation, which means very advanced relationship. Turkmenistan doesn't even have the basic agreement with the EU. It's still stuck in the parliament, but they still interact, which means that all of, all of that talk for 30 years about conditionality at the highest level is simply not paid up. I'm actually, I'm not saying that it's not important. You know, here I'm just being objective. I agree that there should be demands, but the tools that they have is, is simply not working. So I think that when it comes, the US, you know, again, I, I won't comment because Alex is here and he knows certainly better than me, but with the EU, this is another relationship that we should really reassess properly. Not in terms of what we wish that would be, but in terms of what it really become. 
And the reality is that, um, again, geography is it's very important. It's far. Central is far for, for the EU. does not really have the same pool that Russia has, that China may have. So the, a different kind of West may have been a more relevant actor. But for with the West that we have now, that's the best that we can actually get. I'm sorry to be pessimistic, but that's how I see things. Okay, thanks. Alex? Oh, that didn't strike me as pessimistic. Um, um, I'm, let's say a couple of things. Um, one is... I appreciate Asel's comment on this question of sort of, you know, autonomy and learning the game and so forth. I guess I would sort of throw out there, how much is this a function of decolonization? How much is this a function of changing international ordering dynamics at large, right? And and I think, you know, there's an interesting entanglement of the two and maybe co-constitution of the two. I, I tend to think of a lot of these same dynamics as rooted in just the fact that we're moving to a post-Western world right? Despite Western unity on Ukraine, that you've seen this everywhere, right? Not only sort of Central Asia, you've seen this Latin America, Middle East response. U.S.'s three biggest allies in the Middle East all support Russia or maintain re- neutrality in the war, right? Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Israel. Um, you see Lula's comments in sort of Brazil about the war. It's as much Zelensky's fault as, as so forth. So I guess, you know, to me, this ability to sort of leverage, negotiate, to point out Western hypocrisy and double standards, which you're absolutely right. You see on the media all the time. You know, this is also the Russian playbook, right? It doesn't mean it's not true. It is true. The hypocrisy is absolutely true, right? But this is also the bread and butter of RT and Sputnik, right? You know, this kind of like relentless sort of piling on about, you know, split screens, Guantanamo and so forth. So, you know, a couple of things are going on, right? You at, um, the West is no longer the major provider of public goods in the region. It was in the 90s. But now if you need a loan, you don't have to go to the IMF, right? You go to Chinese Development Bank. You can go to Turkey. You can go to the Gulf, right? Lots of sources of public finance and lots of alternative, either illiberal or non-liberal values too, right? That you don't have to take this sort of standing up. In terms of you know, the actual, you know, influence of the U.S. Look, like the U.S. has always viewed Central Asia instrumentally, always, with the exception of the 1990s. But even then, right, the sort of strengthening sovereignty and security was code word of like anyone but Russia. Right back then, we liked Chinese investment. We tried to get China more involved because it was anyone but Russia. 9-11 changes fundamentally the strategic equation. But again, Central Asia is only relevant in terms of its security cooperation and its logistics vis-a-vis sort of the Afghan campaign. And yes, it does give the U.S. some leverage. And Bruce, we've talked about this so much in the past, sort of, you know, where, you know, U.S. military presence didn't enhance or undermine liberal values. I mean, I think it it, it set a spotlight on what the U.S. was doing, right? Including its sort of hypocrisy. Now you don't even have that. Right. What do you have? Pompeo tried the anti-China thing, right, where he went to Central Asia and say, look, you have to reject the Chinese. And Central Asian officials are like, you're crazy. Right. Um, And now we have the sort of, you know, be against Russia and the Ukraine thing. So it's just it's issue after issue after issue that the U.S. is always wanting some broader kind of foreign policy goal from Central Asia. And. You know, I understand the sort of a lack of patience with it, frankly, right? Whereas, you know, the other countries, and it's not just sort of Russia and China, 
you know, Iran that was mentioned, Turkey, you know, they're there for the long run. It's it's the neighborhood. U.S. is always seeking something, right? It's always has sort of something on this agenda. And I think it's it's natural to treat it at arm's length and, and with some suspicion. Having said that, having better ties with Washington is better than not, right? And so this is why you still see sort of an openness to meet with Blinken and so forth to push the other parts of the agenda. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Central Asia to me is a kind of a microcosm of sort of the decline of liberal ordering dynamics across all of these sort of dimensions. It's an interesting sort of, I would say, regional case study of it. And uh, can I jump in here as well? Um, it's just, it's also interesting to see the, the amount of money uh, that both the EU and the US are pledging into the region. Uh, I mean, and also refocus of that aid, right? I mean, if before aid would actually go towards building civil society capacity, uh, democratization, civic education, and things like that, now we have a completely different structure of aid uh, that's going on. Uh, and uh, Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan were actually cut off from that for quite a while um, because we are supposed to be upper middle income country. And uh, what was interesting as well is now we are, uh, I mean, most of the attention of the EU and the US go into building capacity uh, of state officials. And building capacity of state officials usually means that they take all of these officials on a ride to Washington, D.C. and somewhere else for a weekly courses um, and then bring them back. So it has no real change in the system. And we're, we can talk all we can about participatory governance and, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the policing, the, the more human, humane methods of policing and so on. But it doesn't really solve the, the, the problem with the existing system. Um, and contrary to that, the, the amount of uh, money that are spent on civil society itself, especially grassroots civil society, and the complete kind of ignore that that aid totally ignores basically the grassroots organizations uh, and activists uh, who uh, and, and these are the people who only have space, who are the only people that have space in the political spectrum, um, uh, because they can they can actually do something. They can they can pick it uh, according to the law without getting the permission. It's it's a great point, and just to to, to further underscore, the Central Asian regimes have outlasted the philanthropic uh, sources and foreign aid sources that were su- supporting grassroots civil society. Uh, in Central Asia. That funding has collapsed now. It, it's almost negligible. And so, you know, in the arc of history, when we judge who influenced who, you know, this 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 hasn't happened the way that that we thought uh, we really would. And it's, you know, uh, you know, lamentably so. And I would say media openness, and you're a great exception, Bruce, um, is another sort of example of that, um, you know, changing sort of balance of power and, and lack of interest and lack of uh, uh, funding. Uh, in terms of, again, projecting out the way we used to. Thanks. And we are getting close to the end of the show, but I, I just wanted to uh, you know, bring it back down to the, to the ground level at Central Asia. If I am an, a member of an opposition party or a uh, journalist at an independent media outlet or a civil society activist, do I have any reason to be optimistic about my future in any of these Central Asian countries? Luke, I'll start with you. You should probably leave the region, Bruce. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, look, uh, I think this is now 30 years down the track, going in the third decade. This is going to be a, a, a consolidated authoritarian landscape for the next 25, 30 years. So they managed to, I mean, there is not a single 
independent party that works in the region within the legal framework. There is no real civil society if you exclude a few pockets. And there is no perspective of building this opposition or tolerating this opposition. And you're going to, and also, again, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan, in the last 24 months, they all successfully regenerated their regimes. And now they can be in power until the end of the decade, into the 2030s, and even into the 2040s, if Sertar is well enough. So it is depressing, but I think that we have to now realize that we, for us, who obviously study the region, but unfortunately, even for those who actually try to change the region from the grassroots, it's going to be a, a total, totally authoritarian landscape for the years to come. And I don't really see any progress. And in fact, I'm working on COVID in the region, actually, while COVID made the, the, religion, the region even more uh, authoritarian. And the reality is that if there was some kind of upward trends, they were all backpedaled during the pandemic. Think about freedom of media, particularly in Uzbekistan, 2016, 2020, things were a little bit better, you know, opening up new media, new sectors. With the pandemic, we walked back five to six years, and now you see blogger persecutions, arrests, censorship. The pandemic was a great occasion for reboot a lot of the practice in the region. And this, when you couple with the uh, the constitutional tampering that we've seen at play, it's just going to prolong, the, the, of course, the life of the regimes, but also it's going to make the, the, the activity of the people who believe in values and in liberalization almost impossible to take, particularly, as Alex said, in a post-Western world, where no one is coming from outside and saying to you, well, do you want to be more democratic? This is the money to you that. So it, it, it actually we enter at a time of uh, stagnation. It's not going to be upward mobility, nor, and here I go quite against a lot of my colleagues who believe that there is, I don't see any prospect for popular unrest, to be honest with you. Small pockets, small intensity, but I don't really see revolutions happening, mostly because the regimes have been extremely successful as stamping the opposition. Of course, I'd, I'd be very happy to be wrong and I've become on the show and I'll tell publicly I was wrong, but I don't really think that you, you have... There is a cultural protest, certainly, certainly in Kazakhstan there is. There may be some in Kyrgyzstan as well, but I don't really see that you're going to have prospect for uh, competition in the form of authoritarianism that we have. Also, like freedom of media... A civil society development. It is again here. I'm really being pessimistic, Alex. I think. Uh, Alex, what do you say? I mean, I you know, I, I I mostly agree on the pessimism. I think the the more interesting open question to me is these kinds of micro protests, mobilizations that you're seeing. You're seeing a steady diet of protest in terms of just like the numbers. We see more protests now than we ever have. It's just the question of how does that get get harnessed, right? Does that mobilize into channeling opposition political parties into challenging the regime? No, right? That's that's not the pattern. If we're waiting to see that, no. If it generates some sort of local political pressure for sort of accountability, for dealing with some, you know, you know, common issues on the environment, on corruption, on, you know, energy and food prices, then then maybe there's some sort of other informal 
you know, mechanism of accountability that can emerge. But it's, it, you know, it's, it, I, I agree about being pessimistic in terms of formal control of government. But the, but the odd thing right now is that we do have a, a kind of a grassroots mobilization, but without the normal sort of channels of, of, of where it goes. And, and that I find sort of fascinating in terms of, you know, what's the playbook going forward on this? All right. Thanks. Uh, Asel, last word goes to you. I'm actually more optimistic. <laughs> um, and the reason why, I'm just going to tell you, um, because I think for the past 30 years, uh, most of the Central Asian states were very much interested in building regimes rather than states. Uh, and I think if we really separate kind of regime building from state building, we can see very interesting dynamics where the state building has been so neglected um, that, uh, for example, and we've, we've seen it this winter, we've seen it this summer, uh, with, uh, for example, Bishkek and Astana being out of water. Um, we can see it in the winter where uh, even Tashkent uh, and, again, a large cities in, in, uh, in some cities, entire cities in Kazakhstan were out of uh, heat, gas, and so on. So the basic utilities were missing. Um, and this particular uh, kind of really, really declining quality of life um, inspires these micro protests that Alex is talking about. And I think that's the, the where the future is, is that the regime would basically have to now put their attention away from regime building where they've excelled. I mean, they have all these technologies, they have all this effective, um, you know, presence and control over spheres and digital and social media and so on. Uh, but now, if they do want to stay in power, they would actually have to go into the state building and really kind of put the money, put their mind, uh, put control over where and how the, the money is spent so that um, uh, people can actually see some kind of effects from uh, from their work. Um, and, and this criticism, uh, uh, I think, is very much uh, dominant because now, if, even in Uzbekistan, people have been uh, really criticizing uh, Hokimiat, for example, or everyone except for Mirziyoyev's family, right? Um, I mean, they're all up for, for criticism and... Uh, it's also very much politicized, uh, the, um, uh, the elites themselves, what they own, what they do, where they eat, uh, their social media is very carefully tracked. Um, so everyone basically watches. And I think this particular attention um, is very much visible and felt uh, by, the, by the elites that, well, now they have to basically change the, the attention to, to the people they, and therefore provide the basic uh, utilities at least. So that's that's where I see the kind of an opening uh, where the as quality of life increases among the people, the participation in policies and politics uh, is going to increase, not only made not only by um, the pensioners, so to say, and young people, but also the people of the middle age that will then go with the kids or with their the entire families to protest, to, to write uh, various petitions and be much more. Uh, public, uh, politically connected. Uh, and I think that's where I see the promise. And I hope that uh, we are not going to see the staunch authoritarianism a la China, um, but we are going to see a much more uh, uh, kind of a softer regime, uh, listening, so to say, state uh, that does have this uh, type of um, communication uh, with the population, uh, solving their problems and being very responsive, if, of course, they want to stay in power. 
Okay, thank you. You know, and I, I am going to look at that as optimism relative to Central Asia. Uh, so that that's probably about as good a place to leave it off as we can. Uh, thank you. We, it's been a long conversation. Obviously, we could talk about this in many other aspects for, for hours and hours still. Thank you for being on the show, uh, Luca and Alex and Asel. I appreciate it. And a big thank you as always to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjolis podcast producer in Washington, D.C., and a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjolis podcast or the Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting RFARL's website at rfarl.org. Uh, thanks, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.